to attempt to, de de to besmirch their opponent was political in nature, a, pol a, a specific type of political person, being, entity. And beyond my initial wondering whether this person as a candidate or any of us listening could actually define the political identity that was being imputed to the opponent, I understood the tactic. Because if the opponent could be credibly villainized, credibly monsterized, so as to produce a sense of dread amongst the rest of us, a deep sense of threat from this person because of this identity. And if the candidate could then present themselves as uniquely qualified to contend with the threat, they might be able to, A, get a few more votes, but if they were successful beyond that, they could then produce a galvanized, unified group of people to continue to contend with the threat with themselves as the leader, right? Because the threat would be ongoing. The threat wouldn't diminish just because one person was victorious. The monster would persist. And so you and I, as adherents, would have to learn some things. We would have to learn some truths about the monster and about us. We'd have to learn some beliefs. We would have to put in practices to continue to contend with the villain. And what would happen amongst us is that the primary difference, the primary distinction in the whole social gathering would be all of us against the monster. So the differences that actually exist amongst you and me, we would diminish those. We would subvert those for the sake of the big difference. And all of the little things that might distinguish us one from another, which could produce their own squabbles, their own troubles, we would subvert those. So we would be a unified, galvanized force with common thoughts, beliefs, and practices as we engaged in the ongoing fight, the ongoing battle against the identified enemy. We're beginning a series of messages this morning that'll play out over the next few weeks about distinctive features of Sanctuary Community Church. Not that we're unique on the planet, Maybe we are, I don't know. <laughs> but in the context of faith communities, what are some features that distinguish us, that you might find different about us in comparison to other faith groups, other Christian groups, other religious groups nearby? The one I'm putting forward today is that our conception of faith is that the only constant in our practice of faith is that it evolves. Is that faith is continually changing, morphing, growing, evolving. So that rather than a unitary construct where you and I all have the same thoughts, where you and I all have the same beliefs, and because of those thoughts and beliefs, you and I all implement the same practices. Rather than a construct where 
all that can be known is possible to be known. Like where you and I could actually come to a complete understanding where probably somebody has and would teach it to you on a Wednesday night catechism where if you attended for 24 weeks, hey, thumbs up, you've got it. Rather than an entity where all the right practices could actually be implemented, if you went to the right meetings often enough and avoided the wrong ones, rather than something like that, we will never come to an end of knowing. We will never arrive at a completion of understanding. We will always, every day, be learning something new, be rewriting something wrong, be growing in our perception of who God is, what God is like, what that means for how we ought to structure our lives. The only constant is change. Now, there are a lot of ways into this conception of faith. One of them, for example, would just be to look at the experiences of faith of people in our long story of faith as recorded in the Bible. So, for example, you could start with, you can put up the first slide. Here is a progenitor in our faith, Jacob. It says, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So Jacob called the place where he wrestled the face of God, saying, I have seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. So the premise here in Jacob's practice of faith is that it's determined by his conception of God. So if Jacob understands God to be a human-like entity with whom I can relate, and I want something, I'm going to wrestle with God And so that's his conception of faith. This is in contrast to the next one. This is a little while later in the story. All of Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, and the whole mountain shook violently. The Lord said to Moses, warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will perish. So if you have an alternative conception of God, where God is smoke and fire and produces rumbling, and if you come too close, you will die, that will produce a different practice of faith, right? You'll say, okay, you go up there, Moses. I'll hang out at the bottom of the mountain. We fast forward to Jesus. Jesus, this lovely human being, said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then a little while later, Jesus says to the disciples, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. So if your conception of God is that God is Jesus or God is a Comforter, that will produce a different practice of faith where you'll feel comfortable and at ease with this entity who you go to for questions, for a sense of well-being. Uh, Paul carried this forward. You can go to Paul. Paul, we cry out to God, Abba, Daddy. Go to the next one. (laughs) This is is then from Jesus' closest friend, John. 
the one who laid his head on the breast of Jesus at dinner. And yet at the end of it all, this is how John describes his sense of Jesus. His head, and this is from Revelations, his head and his hair were white as white wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So these are all conceptions of God stretching across the story, you know, in which we place ourselves, all producing dramatically different practices of faith. What to me is most remarkable is that in spite of this, instead of this existing in the story that we claim to inhabit, my guess is that any of you who have come from a Christian tradition, a Christian denomination, you will have been taught that God is one. God is a single identifiable entity, a unitary construct, and we know what that construct is. We know the correct conception of God. This was certainly my life growing up. <clears throat> In my religious tradition, as I've hinted, catechism was a part of it. We knew who God was, and we knew how to define God. And the notion that it could be other than that, that God could be different for different people, or conceptions of God could be different for different people, faith practices could change, could vary, could grow, could morph, could be something other than constant, unitary, made us really anxious, right? A lot of energy going into producing unanimity of a conception about God and a sense that you could arrive at a complete understanding. And for me, the connection between these two things, between the political and this anxiety about God needing to be the same goes straight into the concept of otherizing, of monsterizing. Because <laughs> it probably is the case that across the course of human history, religion is the entity at the forerunner of producing unanimity of human communities through the villain through identifying a monster, through identifying a villain, and saying that's who we all need to be organized against. That's how we define ourselves. That's how we do social structuring. Again, this would have been the case for me for sure. A part of the organizing principle for me in my growing up experience of religion was knowing clearly who was bad, who was good, what was right, what was wrong, how to behave in relationship to that, what to avoid, what to embrace, where to go, where to not go, all based on this construct. The history of religion through and through is identifying villains, is setting ourselves up against villains, and producing, because of that, a galvanized sense of faith where what we think, what we believe, and how we put those thoughts and beliefs into practice has to be the same for each and every one of us and has to be propagated forward into the next generation because there is always 
a threat. Some of the deepest and strongest and most influential streams of Christianity were birthed out of this, out of identifying one source of threat after another, after another, after another, because this is so core to how we understand ourselves, to how we define ourselves, to how we produce unanimity of identity. It is also one of the things that Jesus, amongst the many items on his agenda list, on his to-do list, one of the things against which he most tried to contend, which he most tried to supplant with an alternative. There's one story that captures this, one story amongst many that captures it really well. And so I'm going to summarize the story and just read the end. Um, Jesus and his friends take a ride on a boat. They often seem to be around a lake and they travel around the lake. They go across the lake. So in this case, They get in a boat, row across the lake to the far shore where they are greeted on the far side, on the shore, by the most important person in this town that they arrive at, the town monster. This man comes to them, and he is known in the town as the demoniac. So to the townspeople, there is a religious, spiritual reason for his identity, but he's terrifying. He speaks in a crazy way. He looks very strong and powerful. He carries with him a sense of threat. He comes to them, throws himself at them. But Jesus, far from responding to the threat, engages with him. And what we learn about this man is that he turns out probably to be the central organizing principle for the town. The town is oppressed by a foreign military power, in this case, the Romans. The man's name turns out to carry connotations of Roman oppression. He is called legion, representing the Roman power, the Roman garrison of soldiers that would implement oppression. So he carries this identity within himself. (laughs) And he has a very strange relationship with the town. What is probably the case is that he has become the town villain because of their sense of inadequacy, their sense of oppression, their own sense of diminishment. So they put this identity into the man and he is tormented because of it. He carries within himself the torment of the city. But rather than, given that he is a monster, rather than having gotten rid of him in some way, rather than having killed him, rather than having actually expelled him or sent him away, he remains. He stays near the town, but on the fringes, on the margins. He exists in the tombs. So the scary realm of the dead, but still goes by. The townspeople, it probably is the case that across the course of time, almost everybody in town will have interacted with him in some way. They describe to Jesus and the disciples, we've tried to contain him. We've bound him with chains, but he breaks free of the chains. So he exists in this strange kind of interaction where he's on the edge. He performs a function. Everybody has interacted with him or certainly had conversations about him. Did you hear? What the demoniac did today? Where is he today? Who is going to try to contain him today? And so the townspeople, their 
The, the organizing principle for the town, for identity, in this place is interacting with the villain, contending with the villain, keeping the villain at bay. All people working with this construct to try to contain and control him. Except for Jesus. Again, <clears throat> this figure comes to Jesus carrying the sense of threat, producing in his own body the marks of tension, of anxiety, of discontent. But Jesus just interacts with them. Jesus asks him his name. Jesus has a brief conversation with him. Jesus learns about him. <laughs> and then Jesus does this thing where Jesus liberates him. Jesus takes all this negativity, all the villainousness that has been put in him and sends it away, liberates the man. And here's what it says happens next. This is from the story as told by Mark. The townspeople came to see Jesus, and they see the demoniac, the one who had had legion in him, seated, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. And I think, wait, aren't you supposed to be happy? Aren't you supposed to be pleased for this man who was so tormented and afflicted that, that the threat has been removed? Aren't you supposed to be happy for yourself that the sense of threat he produced in you is gone? That you no longer have to contend with him? You no longer have to try to apprehend, suppress, control, chain, expel him? But all they're thinking is, Jesus, what did you do? Right? The man is happy, but they're no different. All they know is that we are still the same people we were 10 minutes ago. And you've just taken away the thing that structures our whole community. You've taken away the thing that gives us identity. You've taken away the thing that causes us, that helps us to get along. Because we're all unified against this threat instead of squabbling with each other. <laughs> all they're thinking is, Jesus, would you please leave? Because now we need to find another villain. They're not going to be able to do it to this man. I don't think he ever, ever again will inhabit the identity of monster. And so they just say, Jesus, would you please leave? And of course Jesus is going to, but the story continues. As Jesus embarked into the boat, the former demoniac begged Jesus that he might go with him. <laughs> right? The man says, oh, please take me with you. <laughs> right? Not just, I don't think, because he likes Jesus, like, oh, Jesus is cool, that was amazing, but because he knows that the town is the same. And he tries to imagine existing in this space with them, with them both knowing the role that he filled that he's no longer filling, but also if he remains, he will be an ongoing reminder, an ongoing voice of what they had done, which seems to be exactly what Jesus wants. 
It says, but Jesus did not permit him, saying, go to your house, to your own family, and report to them the things the Lord has done for you, and that he showed you mercy. And the man departed and began to proclaim in the cities of the regions the things Jesus did for him. And everyone was amazed. Now, I can't imagine an occurrence that would cause faith to evolve in a more powerful way than this. I mean, you try to imagine it, right? You've been a, city of, a citizen of this town, and you've inhabited a certain social construct, an understanding of who's who, what's what, what differences are, are important, and how God interacts with that. And all of a sudden, you have a voice that has been suppressed, a voice that has actually been the voice that inhabited the monster, saying, yeah, you were wrong. Who you thought I was, how you related to me, how God relates to me, what God thinks of me, is actually quite different than what you thought of me and how you treated me and how God thinks we should deal with our insecurities, our senses of inadequacy, is very different than how you were doing it. And he starts in his home, he starts in his town, then he travels the other towns, and everybody would have known. And this, I think, you know, we can conceptualize faith as an evolving construct in a sort of cosmic sense or in a long-term sense. We learn new things about the nature of the cosmos, and that affects our understanding of how God plays a role in it all. Absolutely, yes. But to me, what I see Jesus doing here is a much more in-the-moment, in-the-room, community conception of faith as an evolving construct. Because if there are no villains, then all voices matter. If no one is silenced, then everyone gets to speak. If we all get to speak, I hear you, you hear me. I hear your experience of God, and it comes through your temperament to me, and it is different than mine. And it will shape me, and I will shape you. And so all the people in the room get a voice. And our faith is always changing and growing because There are, hopefully, always new people coming in. And as new people coming in, rather than us telling them what to think and believe and how to behave in a faith context, we hear from them. How has your temperament, how has your experience shaped your conception of God? How does that map onto faith practices for you? This has had a profound effect for me. I remember... Um, when Katie Mborek, one of the, a, a leader of the queer community in our church, gave a sermon from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, and she took unto herself in a deep and profound way the sentiment from David in the Psalms, where David says, God, you have made me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I heard Katie saying that, And it mapped onto historic thoughts that I had had about queerness and where that had existed in my former faith practice 
And I heard it in a new way. It changed me. It caused my faith to evolve. Not just my thoughts and beliefs, but my own practices. How I interacted with God. How I perceived God seeing me. How I prayed. I have five children. Three of them are married to women of color. And it was... (laughs) You know, I, I always think I'm more advanced than I am, like until I come into contact with a real person. <laughs> and so coming into t- contact with these women of color revealed to me how white my God was and how white my practice of faith was. And so, <laughs> thank God, my practice of faith evolved, right? And it's like that. That is what we want here. I'm going to close with a statement from Paul because he, one of, the, one of the challenges of the Gospels is that Jesus is kind of this bull in a china shop and he just sort of runs around blowing things up and <clears throat> we don't really get to see the aftermath. That's what Paul has to deal with. <laughs> and so we see Paul. Here's what he writes to one of the most fractious churches on the planet just given over to this kind of rivalry and otherizing and monsterizing, and this is how we identify ourselves, who we're aligned with and who we're against. This is what Paul writes. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Judeans or Greeks, whether slaves or freed people, and all of us were given one spirit to drink. But in spite of that unity, he says, but the body is not a single member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, it is not actually, for that reason, not of the body. Like, you can't do that. (laughs) If the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, it is not for this reason, not of the body. If the whole body is an eye, where is hearing? If the whole is hearing, where are the smelling? (laughs) But now God has situated the members, each one of them, in the body as God has willed. And if all were one member, where the body? Yet now, in fact, many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Rather, God assembled the body, giving more abundant honor to that which to us seems less, so that there be no division in the body, but that instead the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members co-suffer. If a member is glorified, all the members co-rejoice. You are all the anointed's body. And so that's part of the vision for us here, that all of us have dignity, honor, and voice. There are no villains, no otherizing, no monsters. It's just all of us in this together, speaking, learning, growing, shaping, always evolving, always becoming more together. So let me just take a moment, pray, bring that blessing to us. The band can come forward as we shift to the remainder of the service. Join me in prayer. God, I feel this 
propensity in all of us. <laughs> I just have to say in full disclosure, I mentioned that political ad at the beginning of the message. I found myself immediately monsterizing that candidate, right? <laughs> no, you're the villain and we all have to galvanize against you. Oh, Jesus, help us. May this be a place where we all have voice, where we all learn, where we all grow, where that is the reality that we embrace, where we just become comfortable, settle into a growing, evolving practice and experience of faith. And where we, Jesus, have been the object of that, the villains of the monsters, would you free us? Where we have participated, would you bring us into repentance? Thank you for your work on our behalf in this endeavor, Jesus. Amen.